is the Captain Create Show with Kevin Johnson, where we punch procrastination in the face. Like, share, follow at Captain Create. And welcome back to the Captain Create Show. I hope you guys are doing well. Hope you're safe out there. Very excited about our guest today, an Oscar and Emmy Award winning director and producer. Won the Student Academy Award and Actual Academy Award for his short, God of Love. Went on to direct Lovesick, his feature debut. Moved into the TV space, directed episodes of The Marin Show with Mark Marin. Was showrunner for Gordimer Gibbons' Life on Normal Street for Amazon Prime. And most recently won the Daytime Emmy Award for the amazing reboot of Ghost Rider for Apple TV+. Please welcome to the show, Luke Matheny. Luke, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? How's the family? Uh, doing very well. We had a baby, um, our second, uh, three uh, three weeks ago. So Super getting a little bit of sleep. Man. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I bet, man. You're getting up in the middle of the night, maybe it'll inspire you for some new ideas. Uh, I know <laughs> when I wake up in the middle of the night, it, the, the ideas that visit us at that time. Yeah, it's it's been, uh, I've been in a writer's room recently where, um, it actually is sort of a nice thing. Like you can kind of think about the thing you're working on right when I go to bed. And then mm-hmm. when I wake up at four in the morning, <laughs> like my, my subconscious has been doing a little bit of work, maybe. Uh, and then I can kind of noodle that while I'm awake. Uh, Stephen King you know, has a, a statement about like how he calls it the boys in the cellar. And he says, if he th- goes to bed thinking about an idea when he wakes up in the morning, they've, they've done some work for him and, and put some stuff on his desk. <laughs> totally, totally. Before we get into the, the awesome career you've enjoyed and, and are still enjoying, you know, I want to go back about like your childhood. Like what was Luke Matheny like as a kid? What were your aspirations when you were a little kid? Uh, sure. And I guess, you know, I can just say we, we grew up in the same town in mm-hmm. Wilmington, Delaware and, and went, to, uh, <laughs> went to school together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I grew up in kind of a suburban area, North Wilmington. Yeah, I guess I was always a massive movie fan. And I remember... You know, this, this dates us a little bit, but uh, <laughs> like what, back when AMC was American Movie Classics and they showed essentially what Turner Classic Movies is today, mm-hmm. uh, I, I really uh, – and TNT used to do the, do older movies as well. Uh, so I think that was sort of my first kind of taste of like a bigger creative thing that was a, a little outside of the kid mainstream of you know watching Star Wars or whatever, mm-hmm. but like watching Lawrence of Arabia or The Thin Man or – you know, stagecoach, <laughs> they sort of like golden age of Hollywood things, which, uh, probably in eighth or, eighth or ninth grade, I started getting into that a lot. Um, which was sort of my own private, uh, you know, obsession cause no one else really cared. <laughs> so th- this was, uh, stuff that I really liked watching. I guess as high school went on and, you know, where we grew up, it's sort of a, it's like a city of engineers kind of, or <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's a, a little more practical minded, which isn't to say like the arts were like, squashed by any means but i don't know i guess i didn't the idea of like a career in the entertainment industry seemed very remote somehow mm-hmm. it might have just been me saying that to myself i don't think anyone would have opposed me saying that it was just um you know you always hear like i was good at english class which is really to say i was kind of good at writing mm-hmm. um and which led me to think like maybe i should major in journalism i, I remember thinking i had to major in journalism in college because you can't do anything with an english degree 
which is ironic to think now that I majored in newspaper journalism because it was practical <laughs> now that the newspaper journalism industry no longer really exists. There is a very tiny form, and I make my career in the thing I thought was impractical, the uh, the uh, film and TV. Let me ask you about um, like the high school bit, because obviously we were in the same English class, uh, 10th grade. Sure. Shout out to, to Mr. Mr. Mag, Mr. McLaughlin. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, did you know at that time, though, that even though it might be a remote possibility one day you'd work in film, did you know that writing was definitely definitely like something that you were going to pursue? Like, was it at that point or really towards the end of high school? Like, when did you know? When did that click in? And it's funny you mentioned Mr. Mack, who was uh, our 10th grade English teacher. Mm -hmm. I remember taking some kind of like aptitude test that would tell you like (laughs) what career you would be good at or what you'd be bad at. I remember the ones I definitely shouldn't do where it was a tie between farmer and policeman, (laughs) Um, which I agree with. I don't think I would excel at either of those. but I remember telling Mr. Mack that I, I got advertising executive as my number one thing. And he said, I, I just remember he looked at me and said, I think you should be a writer, hmm. um, which was it, it wasn't like a ground shake. It wasn't like my whole life changed them. But I, I'm, I'm glad he said that. Or hmm. it was, it's just nice to get like some kind of vote of confidence. Uh, it's it's weird. Somehow being a an advertising executive seemed more realistic than or a writer just seemed I guess like, I never met a writer before or like what what that would even mean so it was just sort of harder to picture um but yeah i mean i definitely knew i wanted to do writing um and even though i didn't know the specifics i i think what i really wanted to do was directing but i just didn't quite understand what that meant um so you're just sort of like pursuing it through the avenues available to you at in high school which is to say you know you can write short stories for the literary magazine and you can be in plays and musicals like do you know performance related things um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess it wasn't until re- really what happened was, I, I, I guess I, for whatever reason, just thought it was kind of an unrealistic goal and then just decided to pursue journalism because I thought it was more practical. And I went to Northwestern, mm-hmm. uh, for that, um, which is a great journalism school. And then I think that's when I got there and I realized I was up against people, or there, the other people there just really wanted to, they wanted to be journalists their whole lives. And like, that was very important to them. Whereas I was kind of coming at it as like, isn't this more practical than like an English degree, which wasn't, is not like what makes a great journalist. Right, <laughs> like, right. And I, and I certainly loved like the right, like the precision of writing and those sorts of things, but reporting is really what journalism is about and like getting to the bottom of, you know, complex stories and figure out when people are lying to you, which is, it just takes a kind of a disposition that I didn't really have. Like I wasn't a very good reporter. I tend to just believe people when they talk to me. <laughs> so that's, that's probably a, a strike against me. So basically I, I kind of graduated and then I was living in Chicago and then really the, the, the kind of the real origin story was um, a few years after I graduated, I was working in like the dot com and the short lived first dot com boom, mm-hmm. um, as were a couple of my friends. And this was around the time that the idea of digital video became like a concept, which was sort of revolutionary in that this notion, you didn't have to be rich or have millions of dollars to make your own movie mm-hmm. um, or even really that much technical know-how in a way that you would, would shooting on film. You could just pop a DV tape into a camera and with minimal knowledge and understanding, you could actually make a movie. And there were a couple of movies that had come out. There was one called Chuck and Buck um, that were these sort of micro budget movies that were actually kind of good. So then this basically was the catalyst for uh, 
wild goose chase plan that I, well, I don't know, a wild plan that I hatched, which was my friends and I were going to make our own movie. We were going to save up our money for two years in uh-huh. these goofy.com jobs. We would quit our jobs. We would move to Paris wow. in 2001, and then we would make a feature film. Okay. And uh, that's basically what happened. Uh, and when I say move to Paris, it was like, it was literally me and three other guys. I stayed for four months because I was most aggressive in my like savings table. (laughs) But, um, but like, yeah, we were there for like six weeks all together with three of us. And then one guy got two weeks off of work and that's when we shot most of the movie. And it was as like bare bones as you could imagine. Like we did everything ourselves. We just kind of met different people in the expat community, got locations, got figured out actors. It was just a real like homegrown thing. What was the movie called? It was called A Place in France. Uh, The premise was basically three losers in Chicago uh, feel kind of underappreciated for their many different talents. And you know how like Jerry Lewis uh, was considered a genius in France, but Mm -hmm. not like in America. So they decide to move to France where they uh, hope they'll be held up as geniuses only to be discovered that they're kind of just as dorky as they were back in Chicago. So it was kind of like a post-swingers-esque. Mm-hmm. It was kind of swingers with maybe like a Wes Anderson. I mean, it was, it was things that were like in the ether, in my ether at the time that kind of swirled around. But then definitely around the notion that we would just play play versions of ourselves in the movie. Did you guys like improvise or did you actually write a script for this? We wrote we wrote the whole script. Okay. Uh, well, I, I wrote most of it. We kind of worked together on the story. I was certainly like the spark plug of the whole operation. But to, like, I think the, the other three guys would, Describe it as this wonderful experience that I roped them into kind of thing. Was that your um, first time writing a, a feature script? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, so it was definitely like kind of learning as we went. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 interesting now that I've... And I think at the time, uh, this, I don't know where this is maybe for a therapist couch, but <laughs> I still didn't even quite think that this would be a career thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know why it took me so long to think that was like something I would need to make peace with or whatever. But like, I think at the time I thought it was more of like, what a great bucket list idea. Like we all these stupid jobs that we're getting paid a little too much for, uh, let's go make a movie. It's not going to be that much money, which it wasn't Mm -hmm. like you you, you could, between the four of us all putting in money and I got a little money for my dad, like 5,000 bucks, I think, which was like more than enough to supplement everyone else's. So we, we were able to do it. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a massive cash um, yeah. you know, situation. Um, but yeah, like I was saying, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking like, Oh, this is my entry into the industry. But basically what happened was we shot the film. This, we all quit our jobs at this point. We were all broke. <laughs> <laughs> so we all, we all moved back in with our parents and across the country. It was sort of like Cinderella after the, the ball. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I turned back into reality left there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the intervening time, my parents had moved to, um, a tiny island uh, just right outside of Jacksonville, which where my mom still lives. Um, And uh, yeah, so I I ended up in this like tiny Florida beach town after having gone to Paris. And then I basically spent a year kind of recovering financially. I worked at the local paper across the border at Georgia. And then uh, as a, as a reporter, I was finally getting some journalism some <laughs> degree application going. of your degree, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But what, what's going on with the film and at this time? It's, it's just, it, it's the, it was all in uh, my friend John's 
house in his mom's basement where he was just logging footage. And that's all we really had. Gotcha. Uh, and it was also one of those things where, you know, we knew if we had friends who were like editors and we thought they were going to edit the movie, but it's really hard to do that when people, it's really hard to edit 40 hours of footage in your spare time when mm-hmm. they have full time shots. So it became obvious we were going to have to do this ourselves. So I basically, uh, you know, once I saved up enough money to move back to Chicago where I lived on those guys' couches, uh, I, I edited the movie together while I did random ass odd jobs, like, you know, SAT proctor <laughs> and okay. things like that. <laughs> yeah. Pencils down. That was my, my big line. Um, and, uh, yeah, so finally we finished the movie, and I think it was some sort of during this editing process where at this point, I guess I was 26, um, I was like, I I, I kind of have to make some bigger, now that this movie's done, I have to kind of decide what I'm trying to do with my life here. Mm-hmm. And then while I was kind of finishing it up, I'm like, I think I want to try to go to film school um, and then try to just get into a prestigious one. So the movie was finished. Uh, we had a big premiere that like our friends came to it's, it's sort of like much of it is like unwatchably amateurish, but like, but parts of it are like kind of good. Okay. And uh, it's funny. It's funny. Like if you look back on it, it's sort of like a cave painting of like where my work would go or like there were little, <laughs> little gestures or kinds of relationships or tonal things that like were sort of fully formed at the beginning, but the, there were just basic things we just didn't understand about how to shoot a scene and that like are a little obvious or just how to like, you know, dress a set and things like that. But that said, it's, it's like a product of its time and it has like charming moments. It, it got into the Wilmington Delaware film festival. <laughs> that was the only place we got into. Um, what was it like and, to see something that you'd wrote, written and directed, like finally shown in front of an audience? Well, that was amazing just because it was like, like, I think Mr. Yeah. Mr. Mac was there, <laughs> the teacher we discussed yeah. uh, along with like, yeah plenty of like conquered faculty and, you know, you know, people you and I went to high school with. So Absolutely. like, that was just, and it, it's whatever. I mean, I, I've been very blessed to like play at the d- different projects in that Wilmington theater mm-hmm. where the, the deck gets stacked a little bit in the audience of people who like know me. So it, that was really fun, obviously. And again, I think I remember it premiered at, or it, it played at the Wilmington Delaware film festival, the, the day that I got into NYU. Um, so that was sort of like set me up for the next chapter of going to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, the film department for grad school. Yes. And then, and then, the, yeah, that set into, and then just as it happened, my father passed away like right around that time. Mm-hmm. So then the, I kind of landed, which was a just, that was a big, you know, transition for me. Yes. Um, and then, I think I just landed in film school with like, uh, I got to make, make this work kind of thing. We, we experienced loss in different ways. Cause he had, he had died like basically a month or two before I went to this, um, you know, really prestigious like school. So I kind of a- arrived with maybe a, a more urgency than I would have otherwise. Whereas I was maybe trying to outrun that. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, yeah my sympathies in, in retrospect, I mean, I, yeah, I just lost my father this year, so I understand completely. Yeah. So you had that extra so weight sorry. on you. To, to really want to, to make something happen there. Um, totally. That, that I, I think I just wouldn't have otherwise. And I, yeah. I remember just the one basic thing was NYU at that time, and certainly to some extent, it, it, it had an indie film aesthetic, like mm-hmm. uh, gr- gritty indie cinema. It was sort of like where that's where you, you go. 
So a lot of the content is a little more like heavily dramatic. And I remember just from the get go, I was not at all shy about just doing something overtly light or comic. Right. Um, I was going to say, cause you, you went in and then you have Irino, right? Like, like that's. Yeah. 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 So I, I, people were doing much heavier material and I was doing kind of sort of very sweet natured romantic comedy kind of things that were, uh, I always like to think in film school, I was the one who, made movies that everyone's mom liked <laughs> kind of thing. Now, did you find that um, like that, you know, you're going against the grain while everybody else is sort of like chasing sort of the same trends. You'd find a few people who are sort of more overtly casting about for a trend. I wouldn't say that that applied to a few people where it would be like, like gender orientation issues uh, explored in a movie told by a straight person who didn't really, who's, story that wasn't really to tell <laughs> or something right. like that or like a, uh, so you, you would you would occasionally find like what's hot at sundance kind of approach mm-hmm. um but in general i think it's th- th- that was very rare I, I think film school is just it's just sort of hard anyway and you're everyone's trying to find their own voice and develop it and then it was actually a little freeing that it wasn't like like i or everyone respects that you're doing your own thing so like since my thing just happened to be a little like different from what everyone else was. It was like, Oh yeah, Luke makes these cute movies. He's, he's great kind of thing. Cute is like a, a word I've had to struggle with, with all of my work, okay. <laughs> and like trying to see the honorable side of it as opposed to sort of the, Oh, that's, that's cute. Gotcha. Kind of uh, dismissiveness. Um, yeah, I was, I'm, I'm always like, it's not, cute. it's charming. Charming is elevated. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you do Irino and, and you, you're in, I guess, festivals at this point with that. Uh, yeah. And I should say Irino was the short film I did my second year, which was, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is, it was, uh, a straight up Cyrano homage where the guy had big ears instead of a big nose. And he lived in a, he worked in a library and he could hear everything Roxanne could say. And then, the, you know, texting the words to the handsome janitor, you know, said them to the Roxanne character. So it's very much a, a Cyrano ripoff with ears, yes. but I, but it was, it was pretty charming. It was, it was like, it came it, a satisfying little story that got me a little bit of festival attention, mm-hmm. very little. Um, and then I think I, I won the screenwriting award at, uh, for like the campus and the NYU festival. So, so yeah, then that's the second year. And then your third year, you have to start working on your thesis um, and the way it works is you, it's three years of classes and then you have two at that time you had two more years within, within which you had to shoot your film. Okay. Um, and during that time you can also be working or whatever, but like, that's, that's how much time you have to actually do it. And then the way the program works is you're not only working on your own, but you're working on all your friends' movies as well, because they're working on yours. So like I was the assistant director of my cinematographer's film and vice versa, you know, um, so there's sort of like a year of production that's happening. So then I, I had to come up with this thesis film. I had some luck in this kind of um, mining a classic text thing with Cyrano. Um, so then I decided I wanted to do something with Cupid. Mm-hmm. And then I came up with this. <clears throat> it was an interesting process. It was like, it started out, the idea was much different. Or There's something about the notion of like, just Cupid in general, how he's like shooting arrows at people. And it just seems so like, weirdly violent despite like <laughs> like what the, the being about love so I, I thought there was like something there that was kind of like darkly funny the, the notion was like cupid already exists like exists in real life and he the turn was he started abusing his own power and like use the arrows to get girls for himself yeah um 
and like the turn was then he but then he actually fell in love or something so i i was like toying with this idea i knew it was like problematic it didn't quite work and then someone had an idea of why don't you make it like an origin story for cupid uh, like a, a classmate of mine, which was like the note that I needed. Cause then I was like, okay, so the, the, the finish line is that he's going to become Cupid. So I could sort of reverse engineer. I'm like a crazy jazz fan and I love like that aesthetic and I love that kind of music. Um, and I knew I was going to be in the movie. Uh, and I do sing a little bit. And if, you know, with the help of computers, I could sound <laughs> very good. Um, but the, uh, so I came up with this crazy conceit of like a lounge singing darts champion. Yeah. Who's a little bit of a, goofy goofy guy who then is in this like love triangle uh where he's in love with the drummer in his band but she's in love with the guitarist in the band who's our hero's best friend so it was like this kind of unrequited love triangle thing that um when our hero receives this back this box of like love inducing darts we he thinks this is going to solve his problems he can use this to woo over woo the girl he's in love with or win her over, but then he realizes the the point is to have this other relationship happen. That his his friend, his friend and the the uh, the girl are the ones who really belong together. So he uses his powers to like bring them together. So it would kind of end in like an act of selfishness becomes an, an act of selflessness. By it's, by the it's end. a great so, idea, and I'm I'm I've always wondered how you came up with the idea of like a, a jazz lounge singing dart champ. I mean, that's such an odd combination. Like, was that because you were already were going down the route of it just being Cupid, or like it's just a fascinating combo? No, it's it's a great question, and it's a good or just creatively there there are sort of decisions you make that are more mechanical. Like, all right, how can I how can I build a love triangle that's going to like work out the way that I need it. And then there are decisions that are just a little more, I don't know, inspiration is a lofty word, but that are just like, you have this weird idea that you're just going to do. Okay. <laughs> so th- that's more what this was where, well, I mean, it started it from a practical place, which was, well, it wasn't a practical place. It was like, I, I always liked the, I wanted to be, do like a lounge singer. I, I thought it'd be cool if he like sang romantic songs. So like that mm-hmm. was sort of the, the, the starting point. But then, then I just kind of worked backwards of like, why, um, oh yeah, and what what you find out is he was sort of being auditioned by this mysterious corporate, the Olympus Corporation that mm-hmm. was. Uh, they kind of gave him the darts to see if he was worthy of becoming Cupid at the end, and they give him arrows at the end. So I sort of like worked backwards of like like why why are they picking this guy? And I was trying to think of like what a like a an archery seemed weird to be doing. Well, I mean it's all weird, but I was like. <laughs> I was like, it would be good if he had good aim in some way. Like that was sort of like what his Ah. unsought superpower was. So that's how I came up with the darts. And then, and then, so then you start working from there where it's the darts and the, and the singing. So I'm like, all right, maybe he just has this weird act where he, he does like, he sings and then he like does darts tricks at the same time. And then that, and that that I remember exactly that all kind of like that part that I just told you like came pretty quickly. I remember just getting off the subway, walking to NYU, and I was like, "Darts? Maybe he like sings and does darts at the same time." And like that, and then Eureka, I just kinda, that's the light bulb. I just kind of went with it. Yeah. Um, which, which like it's like, that's exactly the kind of idea that you can stop yourself with too, where you're just like, "No, nah, let's keep going." Like it's it's too stupid and it's not a thing. It's too weird. Um, but hey, I'm glad I. And that might even be just having been like a little, like, I think maybe now I might censor that kind of idea or like try to like 
deepen it a little more, think of something. But uh, at that time, I was just like, no, that sounds good. I can sing. Maybe if I act in it, too, I can get acting work after the movie. Uh, let's just do it. And then I'm just glad I trusted my gut with, with that part. Absolutely. So you finish the film and then, you know, what's the path? Cause I mean, obviously the, the first step is what festivals? Uh, dis- <laughs> disappointment. So okay. yeah. So the, the way the, the way grad school was sort of set up at that time, it's all about getting your short into Sundance. Like that's what the, or that's what NYU is. It's a very Sundance oriented sort of thing, mm-hmm. which was always, I always, I feel like my approach wasn't, it wasn't like diametrically opposed to Sundance, but it wasn't like a classic Sundance feel either. Um, I would say tonally, it was probably a mix between like Wes Anderson and Woody Allen kind of, mm-hmm. um, which isn't necessarily like a Sundanceiest thing, even though it's kind of like well-regarded. So, but still I thought it was pretty good. It was also an 18 minute short, which is hard to program. Mm. So then I, Applied to Sundance, got rejected. Applied to South by Southwest, got rejected. Then I was like, I remember I, I had just started working at Made for MTV. It's like this reality show they had. It was yep. just, and I, I remember even saying on my first day, like, I prob- I'm probably going to need off for the, the dates of the Tribeca Film Festival because I'm expecting to to play there, which was very embarrassing because I didn't get in. <laughs> I had to say, like, no, I'm available. I didn't get in. Um, <laughs> So then it, it was actually like rather frustrating because I was very happy with how it turned out and like people enjoyed watching it and it it, it just seemed like it wasn't getting any, it, it got a couple like smaller festivals attention, but like nothing that would really like advance your career. And then one of the random things I applied to was the Student Academy Awards, which um, or just a step back, basically the way the Oscars works, there's a number of qualifying festivals, like 50 or 60. Like, so if you win the national festival, that makes you eligible, eligible to submit to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, if you win Sundance, you can do that. If you win the student Oscars, but so the student Oscars had 450 entries, I think, which isn't nothing, but compared to say Sundance, there was like 8,000. So it was like comparatively a, a very uncompetitive festival, mm-hmm. but then I ended up winning the student Oscar. And then, so that, that seemed like, Oh wow. Film school was worth it. It really, uh, oh, uh, oh yeah, I, I won like all the prizes, in, uh, the big prizes in the uh, the NYU festival. So I was like proud of that. But it seemed like that's as far as it was going to go. But then this one little break in the case with the student Oscars happened. And I was like, oh my gosh, I I just won the regional student Oscars. I'm going to the national. Oh my god, I won the the student academy award. And Jeremy Renner handed it to me <laughs> in the what's, the that, theater what's in, that like i mean you know all of a sudden you go from all this rejection and now you've won the student academy award i mean is it did it still feel like okay this is the student academy award or, or literally were you like wow i've arrived i mean what, what was the what it was, was incredibly it? exciting okay. and it made me feel um darkly victorious over all the people at mtv that i had left behind <laughs> <laughs> in that, that, that job that i hated yeah <laughs> um yeah it was it, it was great, but I mean, it come with it comes a little panic because like I didn't really have a feature script that was ready to go because mm-hmm. you're like, you're like, oh, I, I'm I'm probably gonna get an agent out of this. Yeah, I was gonna uh, ask you, did I, agents come a calling once you? I mean, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were three agencies that were interested after the student Oscars, mm-hmm. um, and then I picked Paradigm uh, at the time, uh, or they seemed like the most enthusiastic, and that was that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then basically what happened after the student Oscars, then I was eligible to submit to the real Oscars. 
which I remember was like, it was like kind of expensive, but by the time you like submit everything, it was like, it was, it was an expensive submission process. Um, which I almost, at the time I didn't have a lot of money. I was like, maybe it's not worth it. So, but I'm glad I just spent the money because then basically this led to literally the greatest possible outcome (laughs) of like a short film. Um, that there is, which was, I got, first I got nominated for an Oscar. Well, first I was on the short list. So, I, uh, there were 10 movies. So for a couple months, I had a 50, 50 chance. We kept having parties. I was like, <laughs> we're on the short list. Okay. All right. And then, and then I got nominated and that, what could be better than that? And then we had another party and then people yeah. start, I remember after I got nominated, people were like, good luck. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, that's right. They're actually going to have, like, <laughs> it's possible I could win. And then let's pause you know, there for real quick though. Did you, did you yeah, think yeah. that it was a, a real shot? Um, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. So like at first I was like, of course not. And when I read the synopses, so the, the four that I was up against, one was about the Rwandan genocide. Mm. Another one was about end stage cancer. Another one was about a kid who accidentally kills another kid. And another kid was another one was about a kid who brings a gun to school. So I was like, all right, I have the dorky, frothy, mm-hmm. romantic comedy with like, <laughs> you know, Parisian jazz score. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so mine was like the odd odd man out. Um but then when I saw them all and I and I saw the screenings multiple times when they, they released them in the theaters, um mine was always screened at the end. And it just had this weird effect of like mine was like the <laughs> the goes down easy dessert at the end that I think people are people it it was because the the other four I think were so heavy that um it just kind of tilted it to my advantage in a weird way and just what I just told you about this whole journey that there were so many things that could have happened where none of this would have happened so like I which means I take nothing for granted like this was not like it wasn't like from the get-go I was like all right this is going straight to the Oscars it just Mm -hmm. it, it just kept kind of inching over these little benchmarks along the way until yeah and then i just ended up at the oscars it, it, it wasn't it, like when we were making the movie it wasn't like everyone was like all right luke's luke's is going to be the great movie in the class like <laughs> like you, you, you don't even this wasn't how anyone was thinking of it at the time so let's go to the award night let's talk about that and mm-hmm. you know are you thinking that evening that that it's a real shot or are you just basically just happy to be there i mean what what walk me through that evening a little bit i i started to think i had a real shot because mm-hmm. articles mm-hmm. start getting written about different categories mm-hmm. so then I, I would see like in the live action short category people started picking mine ah. and you know i'd been to screenings where it was really well received i mean mine's different because like the other ones were serious whereas mm-hmm. you can in a live screening you can tell if a comedy is working pretty easily if everyone's laughing so like it, it just always kind of felt like mine was playing really well so it was I, I i definitely thought i was a contender for sure um i didn't think it was a lock but like let's just say the my heart was never beating faster in like the minutes leading up to the because they told you you were like the seventh I was like the 17th category of the night. And I remember live action or sorry, the documentary short documentary was right before. And they were even like sitting near us. And I remember like when that category was being announced, like, cause I knew I was up next. My heart was just like pounding in a way that I, I just can't even remember. And then like when they said, then Jake Gyllenhaal said my name and he said it wrong. Then, like he's, he says yeah, like yeah, Luke Mahetti or something. What did Mahetti he say? Or something like that. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, I, 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 you know, Hey, you were, you were in, my class in high school of substitute teachers not saying it right. Like that, 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 that's, that, I've been used to that. Um, but, 
yeah, no, it was just a, a crazy feeling. And then you mm-hmm. go up there, you make your speech and, uh, then your life is suddenly, I mean, you, you emerge kind of a different person in the world. <laughs> like it's, there's a few moments in my life where I like in the space of a few minutes, everything kind of changed a little bit. Oh, I can't um, imagine. Yeah. You know, you, you obviously also became sort of viral because of your speech, right? I mean, people were commenting on your hair, you thanking your mom yeah. I and mean, it was very endearing and charming and everything. But then, you know, I, I remember at that time, you know, on social media, I was like, is he standing next to Tom Hanks? How cool, you know? And, and so what yeah. happens right after, okay, you win, you've got the Oscar in your hand. Is First of all, is that your actual Oscar or stage prop Oscar when you're up there? No, it's the real one. It's the real one that, but it doesn't have your name on it. And then you go to the, I mean, it's very fancy. You go to the governor's ball Mm -hmm. where there's this big like dinner where then you go to this bar where you basically get in line with other Oscar winners. And then while you have a drink, they engrave your Oscar. (laughs) Uh, uh, In front of me was Aaron Sorkin for social network. And behind me was Natalie Portman for black Swan. So it was like, it was it was very much a Cinderella esque thing, or like, or, or like I think the word surreal is often overused, but like it literally was like it does. It seemed like a dream you would have, yeah. where like yeah, I was at the Oscars, I won, like I was talking to Aaron Sorkin, like it was. So it, it was definitely a heading, and then you go to the Vanity Fair party afterwards, where like Tom Hanks comes up to you, and, you know, mm-hmm. says some funny things, and like no, it was it was insane. Where, where does one keep an Oscar in the house? I'm just curious. Like, I mean, do you, do you have I gave like, it to my mom? You gave it to your mom. Oh, how awesome. Yeah. Cause I mean, I was like, well, you know, I would have to put it, I mean, in like the bathroom for a minute, just, just as that kind of thing where it's Well, like, yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> it, it happened so early in my career. I'm at home in my apartment in Brooklyn, yeah. frantically trying to write the next thing. Yeah. Looking at this Oscar staring at me like Gollum. Like, and no pressure uh, at all, right? To live up to that. exactly. So I was like, I th- I need to get this out of my. This isn't helping anybody. It, mm. So I was like, Mom, <laughs> you can have it. Put <laughs> yeah. Um. So that's just where it ended up. So then, basically, this set into motion, you know, a massive ex- period of expectations and attention mm-hmm. that, uh, in retrospect, I like didn't capitalize on the way. Well, you can only do what you can do. Like I, I had this feature script that was sort of half built. Um. Was this Birders sort of or was to, this something else? Well, yes, yeah, so there was Birders Guide to Everything, which was uh, a feature expansion of my friend's thesis film that he went on to direct, Rob Meyer, mm-hmm. um, that I had been sort of working on with him during all of the submission process. It was interesting. Like at the beginning of it, I still hadn't written my thesis yet. And by the end of it, like um, I had an Oscar. So it was like because we had just been working on this feature script the whole time together. Yeah. But meanwhile, I had to work on my own thing. I had this kind of half-baked Don Quixote adaptation called Ron Quixote, where I was going to play a Ron Quixote-like figure, and Gabourey Sidibe was going to be the Sancho Panza sidekick, um, which sounds funny. Uh, The script was never as good as what I just said. So it was one of those things like, you know, achieving the promise of the premise (laughs) was... (laughs) was was not achieved uh but it was it was just so nerve-wracking i mean if you write these things in a vacuum no one cares if you even finish it but like we just dropped a, had, uh, save the cat reference is that something that you do you ascribe to a particular like format or or any of those types of things in terms of like outlining and what have you or no or do you just kind of just free flow with whatever the ideas are uh, the process has certainly evolved and i guess there's not one particular like screen running manual i swear by or anything mm-hmm. i would say that the way these things work, especially for a feature, like 
you do need some kind of digestible idea or way to explain what it is, which isn't to say high concept, but like, you know, a few sentences, you should be able to sort of get across what the idea is. And Mm -hmm. then your script should deliver on whatever you just said. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If I say like, I'm doing, if you just saw my short and you're like, all right, this is this kind of goofy guy. um, And I'm going to star in a Don Quixote thing. And then Gabourey Sidibe is the sidekick. So I think what you start thinking is sort of like a funny buddy comedy kind of situation where like I'm delusional and she's the the you know level-headed one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I ended up the plot that I came up with, which was sort of cool, was like the premise was the guy like had amnesia and then he didn't know who he was, but he had this one kind of memory of this like woman that he was in love with, and then uh Gabourey's Sidibe like helps him find this woman or whatever. Yeah. So then already you're just kind of like a little off of what I was talking about, let alone like an adaptation. So then it ended up being more of like a vertigo esque kind of ah. you know, m- mystery. It was it was like a if you're doing an amnesia thing, it's already a mystery story. So like how do you get amnesia? What yeah, so then I was sort of like delivering a different there was just something kind of wonky about the design of it that I think at that point I just never, I just didn't have the chops to kind of understand what was wrong with it, nor like really a close mentor that I trusted enough who might've been able to point this out to me. Also, the other thing is if, if you win an Oscar, people suddenly think, you know what you're doing. I was so going like, to say, cause you're vaulted from one student film essentially, yeah. not, you know, to, to this, you know, mega star in a sense, you know, in the industry, but you're still very early in the development of your voice and your craft. Right. To- Absolutely. Like at that point I was very equipped to make the movie that I made, but not much else. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, basically that script was, I was kind of struggling with it. Meanwhile, this uh, other screenplay came along for this movie lovesick. Cause like basically what happens if you win an award, like I did, you might start, you get an agent, you might start getting projects that are sent to you called open directing assignments. Mm -hmm. And those are, um, essentially movies that are have a, pr- a producer attached or maybe a star that other people have passed on and now they're sending it to you. Right. Right. <laughs> so like, like I, it's, I was no one's first choice right after winning the live action short Oscar. Like that's not, that doesn't really, it doesn't really work that way. Right. So like I would get a couple and, and when they send it to you, it doesn't mean you've gotten the job. It means you're welcome to like pitch on the project and then maybe you'll get it. Talk about that real um, quick. So for people that don't mm-hmm. really know what that's like, you know, so you get a script for something like that. You've got to go in with, and basically say your take on it. Right. I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, exactly. So you're basically trying to demonstrate why you're the person for the job. So like if there's some kind of personal connection, why you loved it so much. And it seems like you really got what they were going for. They also probably think there are problems with it, too. So they're hoping that you kind of are in alignment with what the problems are or you astutely point out a problem they didn't understand. And then you have some kind of solution for the script or um, a new complication that's missing because it's it got boring in one place. And then, you know, you might have a you start talking about like casting ideas and Mm -hmm. you basically you're sort of spelling out what how you would do the movie kind of. Uh, if you, if everything went your way and like, you know, you show them production, you show them still images from other movies or paintings or something that kind of match the aesthetic you're going for. And 
It's basically um, bringing what's in your head to, you know, to, to the to the table so they can understand, okay, this is the approach, basically, how you're going to take it. Absolutely. And you have about, like, you have, like, 45 minutes or an hour to do that. And you're, mm-hmm. you're just trying to, you know, show that, like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. He has a strong point of view on or This person knows what they're doing. They have a strong point of view on the material. And you come off as someone they would like to work with because you're going to be in bed with this these people for a little while. Now, so, are you finding uh, at this stage, is it really the craft and what you, you're, you know, they know that you can deliver or is it also just being good in a room? I mean, like, is there sort of a a breakdown? Would you say like it's it's 50%, you know, what they know you can do versus how you're in the room? Or, I mean, what, what, what was your feel in terms of when you were in these rooms pitching? I mean, it's different stages of your career. Like, if you're if you just won an Oscar and you're good in a room, then it seems then people just start ascribing superpowers to you. Mm. Um, whereas, like you know, being good in a room, it just never hurts. Uh, I think it's it's now uh, and good in a room is sort of this phrase that you <laughs> hear a lot in the industry of like you right. know if you, go, you have to meet with all different execs and then you know being bad in a room is sort of means you're like a brilliant writer, but like you can't really carry on a conversation and it's just kind of socially awkward. Whereas a, a lot more of is like this kind of personal interaction with people. Cause like the, just cause you wrote a great, well, I don't know, like directing anyway, like it's a people job and then you're going to have to work with these execs for a long time. So it's like any job interview, like you need to seem like someone they can go to work with, uh, along with however confidently you and creatively you can express like a, a concept. Was so that these, easy these for you? All- like coming from film school and stuff where you didn't have to do that? I mean, how was that transition for you? It certainly would have, uh, there were, I mean, because there was no instruction at all mm-hmm. on pitching. Although I think that's, that's changed a little bit. And pitching is very important to TV now that I, I do that more. But those things aren't the hardest to learn. It's not like I should have spent a year taking classes and pitching, but it would have been nice to just do like one you know, like a primer week long work workshop to like kind of hear different strategies or something. It sort of suits my chatty personality and I used to do stand up. So there's like a little bit of like, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to like work the room for 20 minutes in like a structured way. Um, yeah. Once I described it as like a pitch is, is basically you're writing a short film about a person who is convincing people of things. Yeah. <laughs> so you, <laughs> you, yeah, you know, you come in, you surprise them, and you—you you, you, it's like a stand-up act. You sort of know when they're going to laugh, when they're not, you know. So it's this thing you kind of rehearse a little bit. Um, so I, I frankly kind of enjoy the pitching process. The soul-crushing part is just when it just doesn't go anywhere. Like, mm. you, can, you can do it perfectly, and then they, they're not interested. Um, so sometimes the die is cast a little before. Like, it didn't matter what you said. Like, they kind of wanted you anyway, or you never really had a chance. Sometimes you can... But it's also always good to have a good meeting where you make a good impression on someone and they're like, well, this guy definitely knows how to do his homework. Um, so you get in there, you but, pitch, uh, and you, you got, you mm-hmm. mentioned Lovesick. This was a script that already existed. It was, it was a romantic comedy about a guy who goes clinically insane whenever he falls in love. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was like a, a premise that was, you know, sort of in my world, kind of. I think what I realized with God of Love, my short, which I also wrote and starred in, I think I wasn't giving myself enough credit about how much the writing and the acting affected the whole. Mm. Um, so then when I was just a director directing someone else's material, that was like sen- the sensibility was just just a little different than mine, maybe a little broader, a little more kind of classic comedy uh, sort of approach um, that like – it's not like my 
directorial hand at that point in my career just magically made it this like elevated you know, to high art this like you know, effortlessly charming you know witty sophisticated thing it, it, it didn't like change it at its core mm-hmm. um so these were just sort of lessons i learned along the way so then yeah it was a low budget movie it was six hundred thousand dollars matt leblanc was the star ali larder was the uh the co-star chevy chase had a small part and um what was that like it to was really chevy chase and matt leblanc i mean coming from film school uh, well, Matt LeBlanc wasn't, he was a star. He was incredible mm-hmm. and took it seriously. He was very supportive of me. Couldn't have been more professional and like relished the, the opportunity and was like, you know, things that could go wrong in your first feature is like your star is really a pain in the ass. And that was, that was not the case. Like he was very much in my corner and was, was good. That's awesome. Uh, Ch- Chevy Chase is was true to his reputation without saying anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> um, but, um, and Ali Larder was terrific too. And this was, um, like it was a romantic comedy lead, which wasn't really something she had gotten to do, but she, you know, was sort of interested in, and she did a good job. So it's like the, a great job. The, so I'm sort of proud of the performances and like the way that I handled the actors, but I think there were just sort of bigger kind of script things and like cooler directorial things that I, just didn't have the experience to know to, to do yet. <laughs> it's funny. My, my DP who the director of photography who shot God of love was also the DP of that. And, um, my script supervisor on, uh, God of love was my script supervisor on lovesick as well. And the three of us were, you know, we're very close friends. Uh, and we go on like a mancation each year. There's always like <laughs> some sort of dark half hour where I drunkenly talk about what I might've done differently on, <laughs> on lovesick. Um, but, uh, which is all to say it's like a learning experience. And, um, what did you learn? the most? Like, what was the one biggest takeaway from that, that first, you know, feature director? Great question. I think when I, there were other scripts that were sent to me, uh, and remember like when these scripts are sent to you, it doesn't mean you got the job, but it means like you could have maybe made a pitch and gotten it. So like there was a movie called spectacular now, which was a very well-regarded indie movie, me and Earl and the dying girl. And I remember there were problems in those scripts that I, um, and I still had similar problems with like the movie, but I think what I was doing was discounting how good the good stuff was. So it was like, yeah, there was a couple, like a plot thing here or there that didn't quite work for me, but like I was missing the forest for the trees of like, but Jesus, this is this amazing love story and a showcase for these two great performances. Get over these like small, stop dinging the whole thing because it has a couple blemishes. Whereas lovesick didn't really have anything wrong with it. But I think in retrospect, it didn't have these like soaring, amazing moments that I, that is the reason to make a movie. Ah. So like, don't put all your energy into something that's going to be a solid B plus, mm. <laughs> like put all your energy into something that you think could be an A plus, And then, you know, through different sacrifices, it'll, the grade will go down from there. But like, you're just not going to get that much return for competently doing something safely, (laughs) which I think was more or less what I was doing. Or or for instance, like just when you were like, how did you come up with like a lounge singing darts champ? Like that sounds crazy. Like there just wasn't a similar like flight of fancy there 
in the other thing. Like I was taking a, a, a much smaller risk than I was on my own material. It's, it's and a, then it didn't. It's definitely a great insight because I mean, you know, when you play it safe, I mean, yeah, okay. You, like you said, you made something competently, but it might be like a microwave microwave meal, et cetera, instead of like, you know, something gourmet or something that's handcrafted. Which, and, and hey, look, you have two kind of goals. You have this artistic one of what it means to be an artist and do your best work. And then you have professional goals, which is like, building relationships with actual people, sustaining a career and things like that. And it's like playing it really safe, especially like on an indie, it, it sort of doesn't advance either. Like you're not going, like if you, if your first kind of directing job is like on episode 10 of like season nine of modern family, like be competent. Don't just do it. You'll get hired back. You can build your career that way. Right. But like an, an indie movie is about like announcing a voice. It's about risk. So like, you don't you just don't get extra points for like having kind of mimicked a mainstream romantic comedy at a lower budget right like, like it just didn't it didn't uh and, and it's not like i knew all these things and disregarded that at the time it's this is only you know in my annual mancation drunken despair moments where i try to like look back and think of like what i could have done differently and that's sort of like how i've articulated what the what the issue was which is basically you know just t take risks early on when you can um because that's that's just the easiest way to get people's attention which is which is really where where you are at the beginning and now you've moved to basically to largely do mostly you know television it looks like right i mean so yeah you, you've done everything from you know gordon Ray gibbons and babysitter's club most recently um do you prefer tv to the film process well i mean it, the only movie I've done is that one. Right. So, and I, and I have, uh, I've written some scripts over the years and I have a new project that I'm going to try to get made. So yeah, I'm always going to try to make my indie film for sure. And I'm okay. looking for it. And the first part of the pandemic I did was able to squeeze out a draft. So hopefully we'll see where that goes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, basically what happened was in the wake of while lovesick was happening, uh, this comedian, Mark Marin, who had a popular podcast called WTF, um, which became very popular, but at the time, was still kind of new and only kind of the hipster elite knew what it was. He's, he was going to try to make a TV show. Um, this is in the wake of the Oscars. Uh, this production company had been looking to meet with me and they were planning to make what's called a pilot presentation, which is where you do like a two day proof of concept shoot of, of your show that you can use as a sales tool to then sell to the networks along with the script. Okay. So the idea was like, they were going to build this Mark Marin would go in the room. They would have seen this already. Marin sells them on it. And then hopefully someone buys it. And IFC eventually made the show and did four seasons, but the, it, it started with this pilot pro, a pilot presentation thing that I was asked to direct. Um, I remember I was a wedding at the time when I got the call from the, this agent. And I remember there was one hipster who even knew who Mark Marin was at the time. Who knew that, and he's like, Oh, you should do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was four days before we started shooting because the original director they wanted was on Showtime's weeds. Mm -hmm. The next director they wanted had jury duty. So then I got the job four days before they started. And in the pilot presentation, uh, Ed Asner was in it. He was the dad oh, and cool. Ken Jong was like a guest star. So it was like, this is my first professional job really. Mm -hmm. Um, cause this was before lovesick, uh, just this one little thing. Okay. Um, and then basically I made this thing and then it went away. Lovesick happened. And by the time I was editing lovesick, they had sold the show. And then they asked me to come back to direct the pilot, which was very, uh, 
definitely a risk. Like they didn't have to do that. Like that's a, that, that really kicked me ahead mm. f- further than I would have otherwise. So then I ended up directing 10 episodes of the series altogether uh, over a couple the three seasons. And then, so then that was this one thing. So I had this kind of cool alt comedy credit. Um, and then a little after that love six sort of came out, it was becoming clear that wasn't really going to do anything for my career. Um, and then this show called Gordimer Gibbons life on normal street, which was, um, it was sort of a supernatural wonder years kind of thing for named aimed at kids, uh, on Amazon, which was very new. Like they'd only done alpha house and betas transparent hadn't come out yet. It was like in that first sort of, I didn't know they were doing I didn't know they were doing TV. Mm-hmm. I'd never thought about doing a kid's thing, but I thought the, pi- the pilot was very moving. I remember like crying at the end of it. So I made this pitch. Uh, I directed the pilot. It went well. They picked up the rest of the season and they invited me back to be the producing director on the series. So I was going to get to direct a bunch of them and they were going to let me be in the writer's room, which I'd never done before. Um, and then basically what happened was halfway through the first season they replaced the showrunner and the showrunner is like a director on a TV show. That's the person who's kind of in charge of all the creative of a TV show or often it works out that way. They replaced the showrunner with me. So then, but then I became a showrunner. I basically, after never having been in a writer's room before, all of a sudden I was like everyone's bosses, like two thirds of the way through the first season. And I was put in charge and then they picked it up again for, tw- uh, yeah, 26 more episodes and I was running the show and it was, an amazing lucky job that there was it was one of these things where we were very proud of, of the work it mm-hmm. got lots of awards yeah absolutely uh, lots of like critical acclaim but it's also a kid's show no one really cares <laughs> <laughs> or like it, it it didn't it it, it expanded opportunities within the kids world um and i don't think it necessarily cut me off of other opportunities but it didn't it didn't find yourself, you got found yourself like a little pigeonholed after that yeah i guess that's what i was trying to say like it's yeah. not it's not that i was like st- like I said, it's competitive regardless in non-kids stuff, but it's more like, it's just more like if you're trying to get non-kids stuff, the Marin is what's going to be impressive to people, not this kid show. Um, but people, I mean, no one like holds it against you, especially because the show is sort of a little more cinematic. It wasn't like a, like a Nickelodeon Disney, old school Nickelodeon Disney, like kind of multicam cheesy thing it was it was it was like a little more sophisticated in its presentation uh which i think came across um so yeah so i did i did gordimer for a while for those couple years got married and then the this is like 2015 sorry this is like a long biography we're so old kevin it's okay Um, man i think it's it's a fascinating career it's (laughs) awesome and then yeah after that was over i that's kind of where i discovered the world of pitching a little more because i was trying to like figure out what my next project after gordimer would be and then along the way i directed a couple other series uh just as a visiting uh, normal tv directing if you're not the producing director you're sort of the gun for hire where you come go for two weeks and you're kind of the (laughs) the guest conductor of the orchestra right and then you leave um so I did a uh, show called Dangerous Book for Boys for Amazon. Um, uh, a show called Black Jesus that was really fun on um, <laughs> uh, Adult Swim, which is really cool. Uh, Jesus is resurrected in Compton, where he's like a weed dealer. <laughs> it was really good. That, that was one of those things where I'm telling my agents like, I don't want a kids thing. But and when you showed like, up and and you're you, <laughs> the curly hair and everything, you're like, I'm here to direct Black Jesus. Did anybody like cut you a side eye? 
it was more like no it was it was a pretty funny it was a pretty fun set uh-huh. um like a really fun set and i mean after having been on like kids sets it was like oh my god this this show is amazing <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> what i want to do okay. it was like there's profanity there's drugs this is like the least kids thing i can possibly do i was like i was loving it <laughs> so um and it was just a really like weirdly cool set too it's a fun like, departure from what you were doing and i guess a, another huge congratulations in order you just won the emmy for ghostwriter congratulations Thank you so much. Quite a surprise. There were a lot of, I was actually pretty impressive how the Emmy committee got the whole ceremony together. Like the whole thing was virtual. To me, the bigger d- difference is just like where I am in each point of my life. Like the Oscar was this massive stroke of undeserved luck. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. what it like felt like at the time. Uh-huh. Whereas this is more uh, of a, a professional accomplishment I feel very proud of. You know, it's it's much different circumstance. I was the executive producer and main director of a show. And, you know, I have a family now. And I'm working with, you know, a bunch of professionals, uh, all of whom, you know, have... It, it just feels like a little more, like, grown-up accomplishment in a weird way than, than the first one, which just felt like I had won the showcase showdown on Prices Right. Whereas this... <laughs> This is, uh, I don't know, it felt, uh, I'm very proud of the award. And I have to find a place in my house where the Emmy won't fall over and crush my uh, newborn <laughs> is the next uh, step. <laughs> All right, so I have to ask, are, are you going to go for the Tony? Are you going to go for the Grammy? I mean, are we going to do some other some other things so you can get that that whole... I've been getting this question a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I have to do like Ghost Rider the Musical or something. And yeah. we would have to... Well, you know, with Hamilton blowing up on streaming, I mean, I, I think there's opportunities there. You probably can get, you know, knock them both out at the same time, get the Tony and the, yeah. uh, and, and the Grammys. I'll ride that wave. <laughs> I'd frankly much more prefer another Oscar than the Grammy or the Tony. <laughs> we'll see where fate takes me. Well, again, congratulations, man. That's an awesome achievement. Well, well-deserved. Thanks, Kevin. Wrapping up, let me ask you one last question. What's the one thing you wish you knew when you were first starting out? So for all these you know, young writer directors that are you know, just now in film school or applying or you know, just about to come out, what's, what's one thing that you wish you knew then? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're starting out, don't be afraid to take risks because the, the more people get involved, the more you have to cede creative control to other voices like you're going to have to make compromises then. So like if you're making your own thing, like make the thing only you could make in a compelling way mm. and, you know, show people what you got. Cause it's like that, that's the whole point. Like you don't, if you, if you're making something small on your own and you're making something that's achievable at, with your resources, then only try to serve the voice. Like that's the important thing to get across. And then occasionally check in with people who are like a little farther ahead on this road than you are just to kind of see if you're doing it right or like yeah. what they might think Th- at the end of the day you do have to like make things well like that's what you have to get good at learning your craft is about taking risks but like it's not about networking it's about getting good at it you're doing it right uh, you obviously have have made a, a great career for yourself i look forward to seeing new projects from you and uh, thanks again for joining us today on the captain creature luke and my best to you and the family man thanks it was a pleasure kevin that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much to our guests and thanks to you, the audience, for tuning in and listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Go ahead and send that link to one of your friends and let them know what they're missing. If you'd like to support the work we're doing here on Captain Create, please consider a small donation. There's a link in the show notes. Anything that we collect will go towards purchasing equipment and resources so we can continue bringing you amazing conversations with the world's coolest creators. 
thanks again. We'll see you next time on the Captain Create Show.